Welcome to In The Pink, the podcast with me, Natalie Pinkham. Thank you so much for your recent feedback, particularly on Jamie Chadwick. I've known Jamie for some time now. She's come into Sky Sports many times to talk about her career, ambitions, her dreams. And it really feels like she's made a breakthrough to achieving those, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but I feel like her upward trajectory is set now. And that's thanks in no small part to the W Series and Williams for believing her and giving her the building blocks to keep taking her career forward. So Jamie, good luck, keep up the hard work, we're all behind you, it's great to see you doing so well. Okay, my next guest for In The Pink is a bit different. Um, I haven't, I don't believe, ever interviewed a poet, an author and a broadcaster before, but this man is all three things. His name is Lem Cisse. Now Lem is award-winning, very bright, very deep thinking man who cares profoundly about child welfare which as many of you know um, I do too and I work um, passionately for Hope and Homes for Children and our goal in that is to end institutional care for children within our lifetime so get kids out of orphanages which we know are horrifically damaging for children and get them back into loving families and Lem really wants to fulfil that goal too and he talks to me in depth about his own life experience which I have to say is nothing short of heartbreaking. So I'm not going to tell you any more but listen to Lem's story and uh, the incredible work that he's doing to make sure it doesn't happen to other children and also his views on the world and the importance of love when it comes to bringing up a child. I know that sounds like I'm oversimplifying it, but it's the truth. Love is the only thing that really matters for a child. And Lem puts that in, well, much more eloquent terms than I can. So ladies and gentlemen, here he is, Mr. Lem Cisse, enjoy. Here we are in a little sunny corner of West London and it's um, lovely to have your company, so thank you very much. You're probably a little weary from the BAFTAs last night, look at that, you're so <laughs> showbiz, darling. How was it? Uh, it was absolutely wonderful, yeah, as, as a person who didn't get an award. Oh, come on, you were nominated, that's more no, than most I, of us can ever say. I know, I know. I, uh, Natalie, I was just trying, it was just an exercise in humility. <laughs> <laughs> but a good night, nonetheless. Oh, it was a wonderful night. You're looking night. very fresh, actually. It was a wonderful night. I mean, it was wonderful. I saw pretty much everybody and met old friends and new, and uh, yeah, it was great to see it from the inside. Well, more on Super Kids later, but let's start with you and what makes you you. Just tell us about your extraordinary story, where it all began. My mum came to this country in 1966, I think, and then she was found from Ethiopia. From Ethiopia, yeah. She found herself pregnant. She was sent to the north of England from Berkshire um, to be confined in a mother and baby home. Mother and baby homes were kind of processing centres for women who were pregnant and who didn't have a husband. Uh, In those days, that was a threat to the state and church. So all over England, you had mother and baby homes where the women would be made to feel guilty then they would be press-ganged into signing the adoption papers um, via a social worker who they were, who worked with the mother and baby home to get them to sign the adoption paper papers. By the way, this story is in Philomena. Mm. This is the story of Philomena. Women who were at their most vulnerable on the bridge between childhood and adulthood, sent away by their own families into institutions to have a baby that they're made to feel guilty for having and at that precise point on the bridge between childhood and adulthood they're asked sign the adoption papers so even though many of those women did sign the adoption papers I'm saying that they were coerced many of them into it unless you can show me a flood of women from the 1960s who will tell you now they just didn't want their baby 
Which I do not believe for one minute. No, neither do I. But it's very easy to believe when you watch Benefit Street on television or you, you, you watch some of the programmes that sort of denigrate people who are pregnant and don't have the wherewithal, the finances to look after their own child. That is not an excuse to take their child. You know, these are probably the most resourceful women. But for women who do give their children into adoption for a better life, they're heroes. They should be seen as the heroes of our society, but they're not. So whether the woman gives the child for adoption, which is giving away the thing that will give her love uh, unconditionally, she's giving away the one thing that she's connected to, often the firstborn, for a better life. That is the that is the act of absolute heroism. Selfless right. to the extreme. But they're not judged like that. They're judged like she couldn't look after her mother. Even the people who adopt think will tell the child, how could a woman give you away? So there's absolutely no thought about that woman. So whether she gives the child away for adoption or whether she's pregnant, she's made to feel guilty for it and she'll carry that for the rest of her life. Anyway, my mother was sent to the north of England into a mother and baby home. She came from Ethiopia. It's never been colonised before. Um, it's got an emperor just as we've got a queen here. It's got a very proud history. Um, so why did she leave Ethiopia? To study. She to came study. to study. It was right. not, she was a 21-year-old pregnant yeah. woman who came to study. Yeah. And the place where she was studying in Berkshire sent her to the north of England because she was pregnant, because it's catching, right? Oh. She was on a fellowship. She had no intention of staying and didn't. And she was sent to the, to the north of England to, into this mother and baby home, this dark, horrible place, which I've just described in my memoir. And if you go online, you can find people who lived near it, St Margaret's, it's called... And the way they speak about it as this... I'll tell you, the best description is Handmaid's Tale. Oh, yeah. It's like that. So, um, she would not sign the adoption papers, my mum. She wouldn't sign them. She said, I I want him fostered for a short period of time. So the social worker who was charged with getting her to sign the adoption papers. That's his primary purpose with these vulnerable young women. Not, this is your child, this is the making of you, and you are the making of this. And anybody who's had a child will know that the growth that happens within you um, as you have that child is, is profound. And actually it's got nothing to do with, you're now a mother, it's you. You change. You find a different connection to the world. You find that when you go back to work, you find you've got a more 360-degree view of, 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 of the life that you're living. It's really profound. Um, so they take that away from her. Um, sorry. The social worker asks her, will she sign the adoption papers? And she says no. And... And the social worker gives me to foster parents and says to the foster parents, treat this as an adoption. He's yours forever. His name is Norman. You can't call him anything else. His name's Norman. And the foster parents are, as they told me, God asked them to, to take me. They wanted to call me Mark after Mark in the Bible. So my name was Norman Mark Greenwood from the day I was born. I mean, it was literally three months after I was born, I went to them. And, 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 and the first words that I said were mummy and daddy. And it was to them. They were my mum and dad forever. And that's all they ever told me. All I knew is my mother did not want me and she left me and they saved me. Um, at what point did you realise that you were a bit different to the family that had adopted you? Well, I knew that I was, you know, an Ethiopian kid, black kid, brought up in a very uh, sort of white part of England in the villages. Did you see any other black kids? No, no, I didn't. I didn't meet a black person till I was about nine years of age, <laughs> and I didn't. I didn't know a black person till I was about sixteen. But that's crazy for you, though, isn't it? In, te- in sense. 
of your sort of belonging and identity? Well, it's crazy in the sense, not of my belonging and identity, but in the sense that all the people around me had such negative views about Africa. So the, 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 um, the, the, the effect of this general feeling that Africa is poor, not just financially, but poor of spirit, mm. poor of personality, poor of, um, uh, yeah, of, of, uh, um, of aspiration, meant that I got that from everybody else. So what is, what is, what is a lack of aspiration to a black child in an all-white community it's oh you you're the muggers oh you're the dancers oh you're the now when you when i don't when you don't have a family and that's the only echo you're getting from a people even the liberals in the in in atherton and lee uh would think um would relate your race to racism so you know who you are what your race is is actually the last point of call in what you become as a person right you, <laughs> I don't expect people to uh, declare their attitudes towards race before they meet me yeah. but that's what happened in Atherton Lee and Wigan you know aren't you people muggers aren't you people and I was like I've known you since I was a kid I'm, I'm here I am you I am one of them did you feel well, one of them then you would get um, no, it's just you're all right. I'm yeah. just talking about. Actually, it was on Hollywood. The black actors they've got to have us thing on uh, BBC the other day. It was that idea that oh no, you're not like them. You're, uh, you know, I'm not talking about yeah. you. Well, it's you're like, not black. Uh, I know, but it's like the um, it's like the, the football teams that will chant racist abuse to with their mate. Put, yeah, with their and, mate and, and, their, a black and their teammate. No, but also they might well, have plenty of black players on their team. Oh yeah, but they're all right. Absolutely. It's just. Yeah, yeah. The others yeah, yeah. on the other team that they're racist against. It's ridiculous. Anyway. It's a disconnect, and this is all about disconnecting. Yeah. You know, family is about connecting, disconnecting, then connecting again quick, and then disconnecting, then connecting again quick. But if you just disconnect and there's no challenge, then a real dysfunction can arise. And, sorry, this is all theory. Well, it's not. It's action. It's what happened to me. So... Yeah, so the foster parents, they tried their best, really. Because the fostering world and the world of childcare is full of people trying their best. And that's why people feel so strongly about it, even if they're doing it wrong. Because they're like, I'm doing my best for this child. But when, they, when, they, when it becomes dark, they're very less likely to admit that it's their mistake. They're much more likely, as my foster parents did, to blame the child. So, so what blame did they pin on you? Well, they said the devil was inside of me because I was 12 and I was starting to take biscuits from the tin without seeing please and thank you. I was starting to um, lie to them. It was the lying. They were like, you're a liar. How can you lie to us? So what they, were you lying about? Were you lying? Okay, I'll give you an example that's in, in my book. I've got to say that because mm. I'm 51. I've never written a memoir before. So I'm not just selling it. I'm saying to you, I've just sent this to my publisher literally two weeks ago. Bound proofs are being made now. I'm so excited about it because it's going to prove the things that I'm, I'm telling you. And it's out August it's the 29th. Story, August 29th, but it's a live story. That's why I'm telling you this, not because... It is a memoir, although it is a memoir. Um, uh, oh, shit, I forgot. Lying. You were talking about lying, and that's where it all started. So I'm upstairs yeah. with my brother, right, who's the reason that they really got rid of me. And, um, and uh, I'm like, I'm going to kill you. I'm 11 and a half. I'm going to kill you. Because uh, we used to fight like cats and dogs. He's like 10, I'm 11. I was with him since he was a baby. You know, I've been with them forever. They're siblings. Uh, my sister goes downstairs says something to my foster mother my foster mother comes to me I've just got to tell you this two months ago I read for the first time in my files that my sister went downstairs and said to my foster mother Lem has just said that he wants to kill all of the family except for our new baby Helen very specific, like most lies so here's what happened. 
I had a fight with my brother in the bedroom. Told him I was going to kill him. My sister is like going to grass on me. She goes downstairs and grasses on me. Says, Lem's just said he's going to kill Christopher. My mother has made that into a story. The story is that I've said to my mother, I'm going to kill all of the family except for baby Helen. There is no history of me killing people before. There is no history of me killing people afterwards. They had to curate a way of making it seem as if it was my fault Mm. when I went into care. I've proved it on every level that it wasn't. um, And you can see in the files, the social, you know, you can see in the files it's not my fault. You you clearly felt a a need to prove that. But, I mean, for God's sake, you're 11. You don't need to prove anything. So within a year, they'd put me into care, said that they'd never speak to me again, said it was my fault, and I never saw them again. I lost my mother, my father, my sisters and brothers and aunts and uncles and cousins and granddads and grandmas and my, my playing field and my f- first school and my first girlfriend, and I lost everything that I've ever known. And I was then in children's homes. Uh, so w- what I want to say about that is that... Um, if I, in my files, the social worker says, you can't just get rid of him. You can't just get rid of a child because they called him and said, take him. We don't, we don't want him. <laughs> I mean, he's like, well, you, that's not how this works. But they said, well, we can't be held responsible for what will happen if you don't take him. So he had to then take us. That's the only way you can get rid of a child if, in foster care is if the, if the child hurts you or if you hurt it. Mm. Um, and what was their justification for never speaking to you again? Oh, they had none. They had none, you know. Oh, no, that's not true. Sorry. Sorry. Their justification for not speaking to me again is because it was my choice to leave them. So my how, do you, how do you felt loved by them up to this point? Oh, they were my mum and dad. I mean, you when you look at what they did, mm. basically children love their abusers, mm. you know. And, you know... I'm sure that parents, I don't know how parents have children because you see how much they want to be loved and you, you know, you, well, you know first and foremost, they've got to be hurt. It's going to happen, boyfriend, you know, I don't mean in abusive terms. But you must also see, my God, this is, it's so vulnerable. You know, the world is so to a child because they will just give you love. If you hit them, they'll give you love again. They will. Um, Do you know where they are now? Do they yeah, know where yeah. you are now? Oh Within three years of leaving the children's homes at 18, I was in the Guardian with the headline, Lem has success written all over his forehead. I, the reason I say that is because every newspaper article has been me saying a message to them, I'm not the bad kid, and saying the message to myself, by the way, this is bullshit, you should never do that. But I had no other reference point, so... I was held in children's homes for six years and then released at 18. And then the children's homes were like, well, we're not going to... We have... You have no relativity to us anymore. Um, So I had two jobs. One was to find my family and the other was to write poetry. But... um, Yeah, I forgave my... uh, I've... I've, um, well, I go through days when I just don't feel like forgiving them at all, you know. And when you, when you see my files, yeah. fucker. I mean, sorry for swearing. Um, you see, um, they just ran out of love. It was really not complicated. You talked about it being about your brother. Do you think yeah. it was because? I mean, I, I, have you seen the film Lion? Oh yeah, yeah. I cried I mean, at Lion. Oh my god, I, I bet you did. I, I mean, that, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I did. Because um, what was beautiful about cry- Lion is that the, 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 the mother loved the, the child she adopted. And I think that's, I think adoption is the greatest thing that a human being can do for another because children will test you politically, spiritually, financially. You know, any parent knows that, right? Especially when they get to the teenagers or whatever. So I think adoption is the greatest thing, and I think a lion showed me that that is the case. I really dislike it when people say, 
oh, you could never have such feelings for a child unless you've given birth to a child because that has opened up me and feelings that I have for children. You couldn't have that through adoption. It's not true. Just because, I believe, sorry, I'm saying this as a man, but just because you've had a child and realised that you have a, a, a deeper love than you realised you had before... It doesn't mean to say that that's exclusive to you or exclusive to that process. It is, if you've had a child, it is wedded to the process of birth that you've found a love. But that's not exclusive to that process. If you adopt a child, you can find that same love. And, and it's extraordinary that a, a, a parent will adopt a child. You talk about your life's work being about shining a light on the damage that the the state system did to you. Just tell us a bit about that damage. Okay, but I just want to say my life's work is not... Yeah, I mean... That's how it started, isn't it? Yeah. Actually, you're right. Your sentence was perfect, actually. It's about shining a light on what they did to me. I'm not a hero of... You know, I'm not um, the childcare ambassador or... No. You know, but... I've had to prove what happened to me. Excuse me. And in turn, that helps countless others, I'm sure. So just tell us about the damage. Oh. How um, and why? Uh, I don't know. Um, I think I've had about seven birthday parties since I was 12 to now. I have met... A person I could call my mother probably 15 times in my life. I've met my brothers and sisters four times in my life. I don't know anybody uh, I have no relativity to anybody under the age of 18. Nobody was calling me I, I have nowhere to go. And I had never had anywhere to go since I was 18. I, 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 if I lost my keys, I had no family to call, ever. I've had nobody to die on me. I've had nobody to miss. Um, ever. And I've known that. I had to wait for my friend to have children to know. I said to him... For you to know what I've not got, you've got to find something that you love so much that you would do anything for it, not 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 to be hurt. I had to wait for him to have children for him to say, "You're right, Lem. This is the middle of everything." And I only knew that because I didn't have it. So I've had to know what I'm not got, and and sort of somehow live my life, and. yeah, so that's that's how it's uh, it's affected me. So that's every Easter, every Christmas, every birthday, every um, every no no grandparents, no no mum, no dad, n- no brothers, no sisters, no, nobody calling me, nobody knows when my birthday is. I'll have friends, you know. But I suppose friends can come and go, whereas you kind of expect family to always be there. Yeah. Yeah, and you have a, you can be angry with your family. You can be more angry with your family than you can with anybody else. You can be more ugly with your family. Ugly, proper ugly. You can be more selfish with your family. You know, I don't believe that people should should be hear my story and then be running home to their family and say, you know, Mommy, I love you. You know, it's okay not to love your parents or your brother or your sister. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be feel like your brother or your sister was the favourite and you weren't and you know whatever all those issues are they're what family are people are always like oh well you know family's not all that good Lem it's not all that good that's the beauty of it you've got a constant sense of relativity with something that doesn't do what you want it to do but it's a framework isn't it it's the making of you if you're angry with your family that's the making of you if you feel like your father has not done what he should have done when he should have done it you can hold that resentment for the rest of your life and it's the making of you you know you know so 
So I, I you know, I, I, I feel at ease in society because I, I get to watch, I get to watch how it all works and. Um, like I, I love it when we were doing this interview and your mum called. You know, it was that was just a moment. I was like, ah, oh, that's, you know, it, it just um, tells you what's important. Mm. It's just it's actually a reminder. Your mum calling you mm. about something at home, blah 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 blah, and then the natter. You know, that's 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 all those generations all just bouncing off each other in a, a kind of universe, shedding different kinds of light, just within minutes of us of us sat here and it's it's an extraordinary thing and um i i'm i'm uh, i get i get to watch it watching it's one thing living it is another have you ever wanted to create your own family to sort of in some way have that sense of belonging and identity? I'm going to add to the joy of this interview now by saying that um, I made a decision not to have children until I found all my family. And then I found my family by the time I was 34. Um, I mean, I found my family. I found the people I'm related to. Um, And then... um, a long relationship that ended blah, blah. so I didn't have children I didn't we, did, we didn't I didn't have children and I think maybe that's what's meant to be you I still know, could I know I know and a lot of people say to me um, they say you make a good dad and but yeah I don't think you can know that actually you know I actually think the making of a dad is in the being a dad mm. it's in the action you know, it's not actually a theory. You can see some smeggy guy, you know, walking down the street, dragging his knuckles on the floor. He's the best dad. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I think it could be. You know, you can see somebody who's got everything and, like, they're not the best dad. I mean, what is a best dad anyway? We're all working it out. So, your kids are going to be in therapy anyway. <laughs> don't say that. You've no choice. When you said... You know, if you say to your child, right, you know, you can't drink out of that cup, right, have that cup, you don't know. They, they've attached that action to a whole lot of other stuff that had nothing to do with you, by the way. Uh, they think that they're not the favourite, or they're the this, or that you're the that. No, just, I, would book, I would book it now for them, <laughs> so you don't have to pay the rates later. Um, now let's talk about therapy in, uh, in the form of poetry. Tell yeah. me how poetry has helped you and when you realised that that was going to be your kind of medicine in a way. That's good. I, I mean, I, I found that when I went into the children's homes from the foster family that um, uh, writing poetry was just a way of being able to see it. Am I crazy or is this really happening? Yeah. You know, when I was... Uh, and I think it's probably still a bit of... You write poetry still like that. Still for that reason, but... Um, yeah, it's a, it was a way of me being able to go, is this happening? And it was also, writing poetry was a way of me being able to uh, remember the moment, because nobody was remembering moments for me. Family's all about remembering moments. Now you could say it's taking a photograph of your child, but I think it's more than that. That's just symbolic. It's, I'm going to remember you did that, you know, I'm going to save that picture you drew that means nothing to anybody else but I can't throw it away you know that idea of not being able to throw something that holds a memory away is profound and that's what I didn't have in care so I think that in some part of me was going this is happening and writing poetry and And, and when did it dawn on you that you could actually make a career out of this you know you're pretty pretty goddamn good at it I knew when I was 12 that I wanted to be a poet but I didn't know what a poet did you know um, I'm sure that I'm going to just take a guess. That, like on, on in your career, like people will say, "Yeah, but don't you?" If people don't know what you do, they'll think, "Oh, yeah, but don't you say, oh, that one's first, and then that one's second, isn't that it?" You know, they don't understand the actual the depth of what you do or the industry that's attached to what you do and how big that is. How that um, the woman who works in motorsport. I met her the other day at the University of Manchester 
Sorry, I've gone down a rabbit hole. I'll tell you about that. But I didn't know it would, you know, writing poetry would have me at the BAFTAs last I mean, night. you've had serious recognition for it. I mean, you were the official poet for the 2012 Olympic Games, which yeah. is pretty cool. Your yeah. MBE, that's yeah. incredibly cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, this yeah. is a success story. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah I, yes, yeah. Um... You don't know what to say about no, that, do you? Because no, 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 it's nice. No, 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 I mean, no, I'm not. No, no. I, I understand. Yeah. I'm. A, I'm. I mean, I've got skin in the game. I understand. I, I like this. The industry, whatever the industry is that I'm in. But, but I just. I have always said, and it's always been true. God, this is so depressing. But that success has never been any of those things to me. None of them. So, how do you define success? When I was 21, the Guardian newspaper said Lem Sassay has got success written all over, over his forehead. I had no mum, no dad, no sisters, no brothers, no aunts, no uncles, no cousins, and nobody who was calling me up to say, oh, Lem, I knew you before. I, the only people I knew at 21 were people I'd known for three years <laughs> since I left the children's home. When I was in the children's homes, I moved uh, every year. Staff changed every four years. Kids came in and out. So when I left the children's homes at 18, I didn't know anybody who knew me for longer than a year. One of the, um, the things that really struck me when I was working in an orphanage back in, you know, this is when I was a yep. politics student a long time ago, was that, um, and I kind of went there as a bit of a sticky beak. I was, I was curious, I was yeah. uh, uh, studying European politics, I wanted to understand what was going on in the world and how Ceausescu had had this sort of grim legacy over... Romania and one of the things that really struck me on a human level was that every time I went into work I would try and identify the kids by their clothes two days later the clothes were moved to a different kid they all had shaved heads to make it easier for lice I couldn't tell girl from boy I couldn't tell one kid from the next and any sense of ownership that they had was taken from them and they said it was in the interest of fairness they also caught every single carer in the home was called mama so everybody called each other mama and I thought what the hell is this doing to the kids sense of belonging identity ownership sense of self and and that must have a profound impact growing up my name was changed when I was 18 when I left care I was given my birth certificate you went back to Lem or you'd never been Lem I was given my birth certificate at 18 years of age and the social worker said to me uh, your name is Lem Sisse it's not Norman Mark Greenwood Uh, but at 18 he also gave me letters from my mother pleading for me back in 1968 to the social worker whose name was Norman he'd named me after himself which is why he insisted to the foster parents that my name was Norman all of the uh, so my mum was writing to a man called Norman who said to my foster parents he must be called Norman so the foster parents wanted to call me Mark after Mark in the Bible and their last name was Greenwood Um, this shaved head to stop lice this changing the clothes on the baby when the next one comes in this not being able to tell whether a boy or a girl this is what Hitler did in the um, in Auschwitz. So we're talking about degrees of institutionalization that take the humanity away from the individual. All we have at base is ourselves, our, our sense of self. It's emotional fascism to take a child's name away, to ask a child to call you mother when you don't care as a mother would, when you have no... Um, no uh, aspirations to act as a mother you're, you're just told you know we're talking about the violent um, theft of of the inner life of a child and that will stick with that child f- for life so, so you don't have hope that they can be saved in some way from that nurtured out of that I mean the experience that you have as a child will stay with you and it will come out in, in ways that you may not be able to interpret yourself. Me too. And that can be for the better. You know, we've all had our experiences with our, with our parents or in children's homes. But the one thing that is free, it's free, it's free. 
is to love. It's actually free. So if you look at a child in an institution whose hair is shaved, who's not touched, I wasn't touched. So I went into care at 12 years of age, and that was the end of being touched. And then they would accuse me at some point of, uh, of being dysfunctional and not realise that I'm not, I've not been touched throughout all of my adolescence until I was 18. This is, this is emotional violence of, on the scale of fascism and on the scale of um, what Hitler did. Um, I don't want to belittle um, what happened in Auschwitz, and I, 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 I never should, but I think that there are lessons for us to learn from it. You know, when we hear the language um, uh, that made that event happen, we, we have to recognise it. And it's in children's homes. It's in how we look after kids in care. Taking away of their names, taking away their, their individuality, asking them to feed the institution rather than the institution feeding them. Shaving children's hairs, hair so they don't get lice in Romania is a way of... Helping the institution. Of course it is. It's got nothing to do with the child. What can a child do? What advice could you give? Say there's somebody listening to this that has come through or is going through a similar experience to, 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 to sort of take control back of their lives and shape their lives in a positive way. Because I know from listening to some of your talks in the past that there are plenty of success stories who have come from adoption, but it does seem to hang over them a kind of shame in a way. That's clearly not their fault. The two things I left care with, and uh, it's the two things I've said that without realising, but uh, one is that the shame's not mine. I didn't do anything wrong. And you have to know, you know, that, that you didn't do anything wrong. And that, you know, if a child run or runs away from a children's home, they're doing it because they don't feel safe. So the police may come for them. They may be imprisoned. They may be punished for telling the policeman to F off like I was when I ran away from care and the police, police came and got me. But they're not wrong. And it's really important that a child doesn't feel consistently that, that everything is their fault. Because that, as that grows into your adult life, that can have effects. You can become a problem solver. You need a problem to solve. You know what I mean? You get a lot of kids in care who then they go on to be, quote, successful and they want to fix everything, you know. Mm. Stop fixing things. It's all right. Mm. It's all right to be sad. It's all right that what happened to you was wrong. It's all right to be angry. You know, it, it, it's all, your story is... is um, it's all right to tell your story out loud. And I think my main thing is, like, we don't... The shame wasn't ours. It wasn't our fault. And I would say that to any young person who's been in care, who's leaving or is in care, is it is not your fault... And, you know, anger is an expression in the search for love, I believe. And um, it's okay to be angry and work through it. Face your shit, I would say. Well, I mean, there's also this wrong assumption that you're in some way weaker as a person if you haven't grown up in a family. How would you counter that? I, I don't think that you're weaker if you've not had a family, but I do, th- I do actually think that you, you don't have things that people have. Mm. So there's a vulnerability, perhaps. There is a, a, there is a vulnerability, and possibly a weakness, and possibly a thinness of skin at times. Um, um, I hope that you come to the place where you realise that anything that you've been through is as bad as that anything that anybody else has been through that's a really big place to get to um, you know that all of our experiences in the care system have allowed us to understand family and have allowed us to understand people and have allowed us to, to be able to see what matters in life and I think that's quite a beautiful thing my favourite person is Peter Libby who was my friend in the children's homes who I found years later who's a plumber and he's got three kids and he lives in a, a nice house immaculate house in Lee he lives 500 yards from the children's home you know he's got three kids 
he's got his job and his wife. That's it, man. That's, that's success to me. You wrote a lovely thing that said, How do you do it, said the knight. How do you wake and shine? I keep it simple, said Light, one day at a time. I mean, I'm so pl- pleased you, you said that. That's me. That's how, uh, that's how I'd like to live. You know, one day at a time. You know, we can't predict anything more than what's now. We can't know what was going to be spoken about in this podcast. You can prepare as you have, you know, and research and what have you. But, and that helps a lot, actually. But um, actually, it really does. But, but actually, it still can't know what sentence I'm going to deliver, you know, and, and, uh, or how you're going to react to it internally or externally, you know. So um, that's the way to live if you can. You know, whatever's happened in our pasts, um, our present is the most important um, time. You know that with family. You know that when you're saying to your kid, look, just sit down. It's now. It's how we are now. Look at us. You know, you won't have this forever. <laughs> you know, and it's, you won't have this moment forever. You know. Actually, it's nice talking about this because it's reminding me what's important. So. Something that's clearly very important in the work that it does, and I'm sure to you, is the Lemcise Foundation. Just tell us about oh, what you let do. Me tell yes, you this. No, I'm let, excited. Let me tell you this, Natalie. It's now going to be called the Gold from the Stone Foundation, okay. and this week we changed it. I never. I can tell. I can say this now. I never wanted it to be Lemcise Foundation. Oh. The people, the trustees. Well, you thought it was narcissistic, calling it after Listen, yourself. <laughs> how can how can you ask anybody for anything and go? Yeah, put it into my foundation. <laughs> Unless you're a sort of super millionaire, which yeah, yeah. is fair enough. But even then, I'm but sure even then, I'm, I cringe then, a bit. I have yes. to say, you're right. You're right. Oh my you're God. Right. So I've been stuck with this freaking name. <laughs> And I've never asked anybody for money for it. I've raised money, but I've never... Like, I can't do it. I've always said, oh, can you speak to, like, one of the trustees and yeah. get one of the trustees to do it? Because I'm shit. I can't do it. Yeah, but it's all about the Christmas dinner, so just tell us about this concept. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, can, can I tell you... Yeah. Really? Oh, no, no, no. no, no I'll tell you after. <laughs> no, they're going to want to know the, the re- Well, okay, so the reason why I love this idea of the Christmas dinner is that my parents have yeah. always, particularly my dad, yeah. has always had this issue with anyone being alone at Christmas right and so to the point that every year growing up we had strangers around the table for Christmas and he would go out on a Christmas Eve and gather people up so he'd go up to people who were perhaps just on the streets and say what are you doing tomorrow and they'd say well what I always do sitting here he go no you must come and have Christmas lunch with us so every Christmas meal I'd be like who's that (laughs) My brother would go, oh, that's your uncle. I went, oh, shit, okay, who's that on the other side? But the point, the point is, it's always been kind of part of our family DNA yeah. to have very open Christmas yeah, meals and open-door policy, basically. Yeah. I mean, it's got us into trouble a few times, yeah, but that, that's another story. Yeah, lost but lost of ours here and there. Oh, yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah, we yeah. lost a load of cash one year. Yeah. Well, what happened is Dad went round to his mates going, let's all put some money in, and then it all got a bit yeah. weird. And yeah. Anyway... He was only trying to be nice, but... But, yeah, that, 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 I mean, that is the risk of... The risk is what you take when mm. you do something like that. And I think yeah. that that's OK, you know. I, yeah. I, you one know. guy stayed in the family for 20 years. Oh, my God. Yeah, Tom, yeah. He's died now, but he that's came amazing. on Christmas and never left, yeah. But anyway, that's another story. <laughs> what a great story. <laughs> he used to be my family then, bonkers, but, <laughs> but brilliant. I love... Yeah, yes. <laughs> that's it, isn't it? That's it. That's, that's it. That's the magic of it. My family are bonkers, but brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So tell um, us about the Christmas dinner. Well, the Sorry. Christ- no, this fits perfectly because the Christmas dinners are for care leavers between the ages of 18 and, say, 30. Um, and it's just on Christmas Day, we present them with a, uh, a great food cooked by a great chef uh, in a place which is beautiful, a bit like this venue that we're at now. We've, we've been given some incredible venues. We've had Michelin chefs give us their workers and come around you know, on Christmas Day. Um, we so what I do is I get oh this is a terrible explanation I've got no pitch 12 people I get 12 to 15 people together in September they have 10 meetings between September and December the whatever Christmas day is 25th and within that time they've got to get a venue food guests presents 
transport for the presents, volunteers to work on Christmas Day. Um, up to about 50 people. I don't want any more than that because I don't want it to become some institutionalised affair of long tables and like Oliver Twist, you know, please yeah, sir, yeah. can I have some more? Yeah. They won't be served through a hatch. They, I mean, in Hackney we did one and there's a salon set up by a really brilliant stylist who was Jennifer Hudson's stylist. Oh, wow. She sets up this salon, gets all these hipster barbers to come down to cut people's hair and all these other stylists to, to, to make the girls and women, well, the, the women, feel beautiful. Mm. If they want to. Um, we all want to yeah yeah and that's what happens yeah, and these it. young women are transformed by stylists who really care for them and give them a it's all about it not being institutionalized yeah. so it's like you will have a great time and you'll be shocked by the presents you get just like as you should be yeah. ah it's um it's beautiful so we began in in 2013 in manchester and in 2018 there were 17 christmas dinners Canterbury, Oxford, wow. Richmond, Richmond's <laughs> off the hook. These women came together in Richmond were like they're like we're doing this, Lem, we're doing this and they all meet every year. They become close friends. There's been marriages between people who've worked together. Wow. Uh, there's been very close friendships between like the head of Key 103 um, is now just really close friends with a friend of mine called Pavinda from Burnley. They they now they now go see shows together and what have you. It's um it's a thing of beauty. We have no press officer. We no no. We don't promote, you know. But we've been on National BBC, The Guardian, The Times, The Observer did a massive piece on us for no other reason than it's community action, and it's not an organisation. There is no organisation. There is no central organisation. There is nobody the boss. There's no um, workers' fees. That this may have to stop soon, but. There's no um, admin costs. There's no... Every community has to do it in every city themselves because then they're promoting the Christmas dinner to their community. They're getting presents from people who live in the town, the business people and the universities and the, you know, the the restaurants that say, you can have this on Christmas Day. The chef wants to do this. And then you find out, people say, speaking to you, people say, oh, we've got a relationship with fostering or with people coming on Christmas Day or with caring or my granddad was fostered or my great-granddad was actually an orphan or you know and you start to realise oh we are not so far apart you know it closes the gap it's all about closing the gap between charitable concern and and community I touched on it earlier my penultimate question super kids tell us what it is and what other projects you've got going on you've also got the book in August just tell us what else is going oh, on in your crazy world. My crazy world. Well, Super Kids, yeah, that was up for a BAFTA last night. I'm really pleased. Came out, did well. Um, Where can people see that? Uh, people can see Super Kids on all four. It's oh, free, yeah, yeah okay. so it's on all four forever. And um, uh, Channel 4 have been a great supporter of your work and, you know, they have, yeah, yeah, a great platform. Been, yeah, they have, and I'll, I'll, I will be going on to do whatever <laughs> um, in future. We'll see, who knows. Um, uh, what am I doing? I... I, the book's coming out in August. Oh God, I'm doing a ton of things. I'm going to somewhere in the world. I, I don't know. I should have come with a lesson. <laughs> no, that's okay. I mean, literally, literally, just dipping into your crazy world for the last 45 minutes has been fascinating and brilliant. I'm very grateful for your time. Um, just tell us what happened to your natural birth mother. My birth mother. Thank you. My birth mother... She went back to Ethiopia because her father was ill. She tried to get me back until she couldn't. Her father died. She married the vice minister to finance under the emperor, Haile Selassie. My brothers and sisters were studying in international schools in Paris and Belgium when I was in children's homes. She then... She was working for the United Nations. The revolution happened. The emperor, Haile Selassie, was killed. Her husband was jailed. She left the country with the UN. She had to flee. She's never been back to Ethiopia, and now she works for the United Nations in New York. And have you got a relationship with her? I have, and like all of us, I guess it's a complicated relationship. When I found my mother, she didn't see me. What do you mean? She saw your father... She saw the last time she saw my father. Wow. 
And that was painful for her. The last time she saw my father, so I was around the same age as my father. Oh, I see. Yeah. The last time she saw him, and that's yeah. often the case. Well, yeah. Often when, we, when, we find, when you find a parent that you're looking for, you want answers from them without empathy yeah. and without realising it's not your story, actually. Yeah. It's a bigger story than your story. You know, we all think our stories are the most important, don't we? Yeah. Our children think they're, you know, our children, <laughs> the, world, the world is mine, and so they should. Yeah. But we all think our stories are our own story, and when I found my mum, I realised it wasn't. It just wasn't. She's the one who lost her first child. She's the one who had to flee the country. She's the one who went through the pain. She's the one who did not go through the best experience with my father. My He's still name, alive, your, your father. My father was a pilot for Ethiopian Airlines. Oh I have a photograph of him with the exact same ring that Bob Marley's got on his finger. You can find it online, actually. You can see a lot of these pictures online. You can see a picture of my mother online. It's good for the podcast, you know. And you can see a picture of my father online. Um, and his plane crashed in 1974 uh, in the Simeon Mountains. Um, my name, Lemen, as it's said in Ethiopia, means the question, why? Nobody in Ethiopia is called why. So I'm known in Ethiopia now as a poet and as... Uh, performer uh, throughout Ethiopia in a really profound way, right? As the boy whose name is Y who came home. Lem, yeah. it's been an absolute pleasure to have your company. Can yeah. we meet up again, please? I want to keep across all your projects and hopefully do some stuff with you with the, the Christmas dinner. Absolutely, Natalie Pinkman. And <laughs> I've got to tell you, it's a real honour to be interviewed with you and... Um, I'm going to make some friends jealous, so I'm really happy now. Oh, listen, um, your time has been precious, and I know that you've got plenty to do, so I'll let you get on with it, but thank you for now. Let me say. Thank you. Hi, I'm Megan, and I love the Inky List because they have products for everyone. Four years ago, I had really horrible cystic acne, and I didn't have a skincare routine at the time, so I mostly was just Googling everything. And I think it's so cool that you have the ability to ask Inky. There was this whole world that I didn't really know anything about, and they tell you how to use each product. So I was like, yes, sign me up. I'm going to try this. I do feel like the Inky List is my friend. That's so cheesy to say, but I, I definitely do.